Here's what I want to tell you today and what we're going to talk about today is this, that um, when you experience success in your life, if you don't put it in the right perspective, if you don't put it in a godly perspective, it can be a very dangerous road to go down. And we're going to have an example of that right here today. And the, the story, we'll dive into it in a moment. We're in Judges. If you are new, we're in a series called Broken Heroes. We're going through the book of Judges and each week talking about uh, different judges that God raises up to lead the people Israel. And just fair warning, each week the judges get worse and worse, not better. And you're going to see that even today. So today we're going to finish up talking about Gideon, which we've been talking about for the last two weeks. There's a lot on Gideon. And then we're going to talk about Gideon's son, Abimelech, who's the next judge. So Gideon and Abimelech, let's dive in. If you have your Bibles, you can turn them to Judges chapter 8. And uh, one way to kind of organize your thoughts are through these three points. We're going to talk about three things, good to bad, bad to worse, and then one-way grace. Good to bad, bad to worse, in one way grace. That's going to be kind of the lay of the land this morning. So first, we'll start with good to bad. Before I dive into chapter one, or verse one of chapter eight, I wanted to give you a little bit of uh, context to set the stage. Remember, if you were here last week, uh, what Dom had told you is that uh, Gideon was, was really a great leader because he led 300 men to defeat 135,000 Midianites. Literally, it was an army of 300 versus 135,000. And, and God had, remember, he pared down the army to be so low so that people would know without a shadow of a doubt that it was not them who won the battle. It was all God. It was all God's strength. Okay, so keep that in mind that that just happened as we start this uh, chapter. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1 says this. They just won this big battle. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. And they accused him fiercely. This is really interesting because what you need to know is the people of Ephraim, they were a clan of Israel that happened to be the fiercest. They were the strongest warriors of Israel. And even though Israel had defeated the Midianites, they were offended that they weren't actually asked to be a part of it. Now think about this. Like, what, what's this tell us about Israel as a whole? What it tells us is this. Even though God had made it abundantly clear that it was all him, 300 versus 135,000, they still wanted credit for themselves. And I want to tell one more thing about, one more story about Nick Chubb. Last thing, all right? <laughs> just like him somewhat. There's a story about Nick Chubb. He was on the sidelines uh, with Odell Beckham, and Odell Beckham Jr. is like the opposite of Nick Chubb. You know, he's Mr. Celebration, all right? And what happens is Nick Chubb scores a touchdown, goes over to the sideline like he always does, and Odell Beckham comes over, kind of gives him a high five, and then he says, you know, I want to score a touchdown. And Nick Chubb goes, I want to win. And I thought, man, that is a great perspective, and they caught that on the audio. But I was thinking about this story. You have the Israelites so full of themselves and wanting to take credit for themselves that they're, they're complaining and offended. They're offended that, the, that, that the, the victory was already won, and they just weren't a part of it. And I want to tell you this morning that I think 
That's what happens with all of us from time to time. When we experience success, no matter how much we know that it's God who empowers us to do the thing that we just did, we are all tempted to try to take the credit for ourselves, to try to want the, the points for it, right? Now, Gideon responds to these people in a very good way. Gideon starts off good, thus the good, the bad. We'll get to the bad in a minute. He says, God has given you, verse 3, into your, God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? And their anger against them subsided when he said this. I love this leadership of Gideon because he goes, guys, listen, I didn't do anything. You couldn't have done anything. It was 300 versus 135,000. This was all God, and we won. So chill out, right? And they finally kind of chilled out. Now, Gideon does another really good thing, and I'm going to fast forward a little bit to uh, verses 22 and 23 in chapter 8. And this is what happens. They loved Gideon. They loved his leadership, and Dom mentioned this last week. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son, and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. It's a little Nick Chubb in Gideon right there. Right? It's, a great, it's great leadership because he's not pointing to himself. He's like, listen, it's not about me. It's not about my son. It's about the Lord. He's the one that rules over you, and he needs to get the credit. I want to tell you this, that this one thing we can learn from Gideon is that godly leadership always points you to God and not back to themselves. Godly leadership always points to God and not back to themselves. And that's really important. But I need to point that out because this seems to be kind of the last really good thing that Gideon does. And then it begins to go downhill. And I want to explain kind of how it goes downhill. And by the way, in this, we're going through a couple chapters of the Bible today. I'm going to read some. I'm going to summarize some of the story. You can kind of fact check me on your own uh, if you have the chance. But the next thing that happens, I want to summarize. And that's this, that Gideon asked for a bunch of people to donate their gold jewelry to him so that he could have made an ephod. All right, an ephod looks like this. An ephod is an ornate garment that was only used uh, typically for the high priest to wear in the tabernacle as he's making sacrifices on behalf of the people. So the ephod is really a, um, it's, a it's something used for worship of God. But Gideon goes, I want to make my own. I think it'd be cool to have my own ephod. So he puts together one and then he places it in his hometown. And what happens is I think Gideon started off with okay motives. You know, he's like, it'd be cool because then people would worship God and it'd be great. But what happens is Gideon made the ephod. And so people were worshiping God. But before you know it, they actually just started worshiping Gideon. It was more like this statue that commemorated Gideon and all he had done. And it had less to do with God. And people started worshiping the ground that Gideon walked on. Now, let me, let's check this out, what happens next. Verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it, that's what I just said, and put it in his city of Ophrah. And all of Israel whored after it, strong language, 
and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So the people were worshiping this ephod, and they were starting to not even worship God, but worship Gideon. And it says it was a snare to his family. What's a snare? It's a trap. A snare is a trap, and a, and a trap is always something that um, looks really, really good, and it's enticing, but then in the end, it holds you captive. And it promises something amazing, but in the end, kind of ends up being worse than you could ever imagine. The ephod was a snare for Gideon. And here's why. Let me kind of explain why I think it was a snare and what you see here. Um, the reason it was a snare is because if you have people telling you how great you are all the time, uh, like Gideon did, it feels good. Right? That's the enticing part, right? You're the king. Please be our king. We love you. We worship the ground you walk on. You saved Israel. And you start saying all these things, and it feels good to Gideon. But you guys have seen this before. It, what happens is if you get told you're the king and you're the greatest thing that ever lived enough times, what could happen is you could start to actually believe it. You believe it to the point where you're like, oh, maybe, maybe I am just incredible, right? Then you start doing touchdown dances, right? Then you start flexing yourself and kind of saying, maybe, maybe I am good. Maybe I'm an untouchable because everyone's saying that I am. And it is such a slippery slope because what ends up happening is you start to move from going, oh, it's all God, it's all his glory, it's all his stuff, to all of a sudden you're like, well, maybe it's me. Maybe I am really, really special, right? And that's what Gideon did. He moved from good to bad because when Gideon was called, he was a mess. He was hiding from God. And God used him to do the unthinkable and now he believes that he is something special and all of a sudden he goes from needing God to thinking that God needed him, right? Success is a trap. It can be a trap if we're not careful. And so I wanna, uh, I wanna just challenge you today because I think we all experience success on different levels. But when you ex experience success in your life, be careful because if you're not careful and you don't put it into a godly perspective, what can happen is it can lead you down this really dangerous road where pride starts creeping in and before you know it, your identity is not in God at all. It's in your own success and you've left God completely out of it. But I think for all of us, including myself, we have to be really careful and remember that God deserves the glory for every successful thing that we've ever done. It's all his. And you might, you might say, well, I, I've done some pretty good things. You know, like, I've been fairly successful, you know, and, and I get that. It's true. You probably have been successful. But I'm telling you, nothing that you have done can have ha could have happened without God's power behind it, right? And I, I'm convinced that the next step you take from your seat is only because of God. It's because he created your legs to do what they do, the muscles to take a step, your brain to tell your leg to take that step, right? Everybody in here is breathing and you're not even trying. It's just happening. Why? Because God made you that way, your lungs to take in air and to breathe out. We are literally alive today because of what God has done in his power and not in our own strength. And I think that should humble us that any successful thing would mean that he gets the glory for all of it. 
And I have to kind of give you a little bit of a, a confession. This, this was humbling for me and this was challenging for me because Gideon is a, a spiritual leader in Israel. He's kind of like, in some ways, like the pastor of Israel. And he has gone from good to bad. And I have seen this happen with pastors. You have too, where pastors start off really good with great intentions, with great motives, and they, they're depending on God. And they're like, man, God is working. But all of a sudden, maybe they experience a little bit of success. And all of a sudden, it's a slow move. And people start telling you how great you are. And then all of a sudden, you think, maybe I am pretty great. And what happens then is that if you're not careful and you don't put your success into a godly perspective, you can leave God eventually completely out of it. And what we're going to see in this book is that that leads to a dumpster fire. That's why so many pastors don't finish well. Would you pray for me? And the reason I ask and pray for Brandon and Dom and our other leaders here in the church, because the reason I ask that is because I know I'm capable of much worse than I think I'm capable of. And so I, know I need to stay humble and I need to stay dependent on God. So just pray for me, right? And don't like compliment me too much, <laughs> right? Just, just a little. <laughs> that's, uh, that's good to bad. That's good to bad. But it leads me uh, to the next one, which is bad to worse. Oh, before I, before I get there. Um, Gideon ends up really taking on he, he believes he's the king And he does everything a king does And what a king does Is this, anything he wants to do With whoever he wants to do So what ends up happening is Gideon uh, Had, let, get this He had 70 sons S 70, 70 Right, and uh, that, that doesn't even include daughters Because there had to be some daughters in there But 70 Sons with all different wives and concubines. And, you know, Gideon, it's like he had illegitimate children all around the nation of Israel because he did whatever he wanted. Not to mention this, that he had one son whose name is Abimelech. We're going to talk about him in just a second. Dom said this last week. Abimelech means my dad's the king. Right? Doesn't get much more arrogant than that. Gideon dies, Okay. Then we lead, that leads me to the next point, which is it gets bad, and it goes from bad to worse. And this is not about Gideon. It's about the legacy that Gideon left for his son, Abimelech. All right, and we're going to see that. I want, want you to read about and hear about how Abimelech came to power, because it's unique, to say the least. Chapter 9, starting in verse 1, 1 to 6. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubal, now listen, Jerubal is the same name as Gideon. It's another name they use for Gideon. So whenever you see that name, it's Gideon. And I am going to now refer to him as Gideon because I can't say whatever that word is. Okay. <laughs> so Abimelech, the son of Gideon, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you that all 70 of the sons of Gideon rule over you, or that one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, He is our brother. And, and they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of baal Barith 
with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed, get this, killed his brothers, the sons of Gideon, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Gideon, was left, and he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all of, oh, yeah, and all of Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar of Shechem. All right, so here's what's happening. You know, in every other story, God raises up a judge. In this story, the judge raises up himself. You see this? What's happening is Abimelech goes, my name means my dad's the king. And he already has a big head coming in. So he goes, you know what? I'm going to start a campaign for me to be the next ruler of this nation. So he goes around and he starts telling his family and pretty soon everybody's getting on the Abimelech bandwagon. There's yard signs and everything. You know, and everybody loves Abimelech. And he even gets money, campaign money, to go himself and hire these worthless fellows, is what it says, to follow him. So Abimelech becomes the ruler. And just in case there's any threat to his power, he goes ahead and kills all 70 of his brothers. Like, just wild stuff. Except for one, by the way, whose name is Jotham. Right? Really interesting. Now, with Abimelech, he comes into power all by himself. He is a self-appointed ruler. One of the things I want to show you guys here is with Gideon, he starts off really well as a leader and he kind of fades and he doesn't finish well. With Abimelech, he starts off bad and he goes just to worse. And what you're seeing here is what happens when you leave God completely out of everything in your life. That it is a complete dumpster fire and it starts off bad and it just keeps getting worse. One of the things you'll see in chapter 9, if you scour it, is you won't see God's name in there much at all. And the reason he's not in there is because Abimelech didn't care what God thought. Never consulted God. Just did his own thing. And it was really bad. It's actually the only thing that God did, we'll see in a second, was bring consequences on Abimelech for his horrible behavior. So here's what happens next. And I'm going to summarize this. Abimelech ends up getting word that there are people in different cities around that actually um, don't like him. Shocker, right? People don't like him. He's power hungry, whatever. And so what, what Abimelech does, and by the way, what happens when a power hungry narcissistic leader finds out that people don't like him? Right? It's bad, right? He, he gets angry and he actually goes on a killing spree. So, yeah, he retaliates. So what happens is that Abimelech gathers all his men, and he starts off with Shechem. They go to Shechem, which, by the way, was the same place that was his first political, you know, thing where he got all of Shechem to follow him. But now he goes to Shechem. And by the way, the other thing about Shechem is that they were like the center of worship for Israel. So Moses and Joshua all worshiped at Shechem. It was kind of a sacred place. For Israel, that's where he went first. He attacked it all. He kind of ravaged it to the point where nobody was left in, in, except all of the leaders of Shechem. There were a thousand of them, they say. 
And the, the leaders of Shechem all went, retreated to this tower in the middle of Shechem. And they were hiding in the tower, and Abimelech said, we're not done yet until everybody's gone. And so he grabs all of his guys, he gives them brushwood, it says. They light the brushwood on fire, and then they light the tower on fire, and it goes up in flames until all the leaders are dead. When I say Judges is a dumpster fire, this is literally what I mean. It is a mess. Now, I thought it could be a little bit funny, but it's not funny that people die. All right. Um, it is crazy, though. Now, what he does next is he goes and he's like, all right, who else doesn't like me? So Abimelech goes to the next town, and finally his horribleness catches up with him. Look at verse 52 through 56. It says this, And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. Listen to this. A certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly. Oh, he's not dead yet. He called quickly to the young man uh, who is his armor bearer and said to him, draw your sword and kill me. Lest they say of me, a woman killed me. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against the, his father in killing his 70 brothers. All right, so here's what you see. Abimelech starts to burn down another tower. And as he's getting ready to burn it down, a woman just tosses a, a millstone which is used as like a household appliance. It's like, you know, something to grind down mill. That's what it was used for. And it throws a millstone down and it crushes his skull. And he falls to the ground, but he's not dead yet. So he asked his armor bearer to thrust a sword through him so that he would die because he didn't want anybody to think that he was killed by a woman. Which is wild. Ironically, this is the second person in the book of Judges to be killed by a woman using a household object. <laughs> Can't make this stuff up. Now Abimelech uh, dies and that's the end of him and it really, there's no real resolution. It says everybody went back to their own home. Israel is a hot mess at this point and it leads me to the last point. But again, I want you to see something real quick. Gideon goes from good to bad. Sometimes leaders don't finish well. But Abimelech goes from bad to worse. And what, what you see with Abimelech is what life looks like when you leave God out of it completely. It becomes a hot mess. You hurt yourself and you hurt everybody in your path. But I want to get to the last point, which is um, one-way grace. One-way grace. I have told you guys about the cycle of the judges and how it works. So Dave's going to put that graphic up. And this is, this is the cycle of every of the judges of Israel. The people sin. They worship idols. That's what you see up here. They sin. They do evil. They are then oppressed by another nation. They have an enemy that's really oppressing them and hurting them. It hurts them so bad that they cry out for repentance to God. And then when they cry out for repentance, God gives them a judge to deliver them from their enemy or from their oppressor. And then they experience peace for an extended amount of time. 
That's what you see in every cycle. But at the beginning of chapter 10, you actually see that the cycle is a little bit different. So let me read it to you. I want to see if you can figure out which parts of the cycle are left out. Chapter 10, uh, verse 1, it says this. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man... I know, Dodo's so funny. <laughs> my, my grandfather's Dodo. Um, a man of Issachar, and he lived at Shamir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried at Shamir. After him arose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. Now, that probably doesn't you know, mean a lot to you, but I want to explain why I'm reading this. Two, two more judges that are raised up to save Israel, Tola and Jair. All we know is kind of who they are, where they came from, and how long they served, which was a total combined 55 years. Now, what I want to point out is that in, in, if you could put that cycle of the judges back up, in every cycle, there is the people sin, they get oppressed by an enemy, then they repent, and then they are delivered by God because he raises up a judge, and then they experience peace. There are two parts of that cycle that are missing completely from the beginning of this story. Here are the two. Oppression and repentance. Oppression and repentance. And this is significant, so let me explain. First, oppression is, is not happening at all. And, if, and here's, here's why. You remember the last couple chapters I just read? The whole story that I gave you today. Israel does not have an enemy that is oppressing them. Do you know why? Because they are a mess all on their own. They didn't need any other consequences they are doing it to themselves. So what you see is when it says that Tola came and he came to save Israel, the question is this, who did he come to save Israel from? Themselves. He came to save Israel from their own wicked hearts and what they were doing to themselves. And I want you to know this, we need the same exact thing. I want you to see um, one thing that's talked about in this book. Um, Tim Keller writes this book. I've referred to it a few times. It's called Judges for You. It's a, it's a very easy to understand commentary. And this is what it says. Tim Keller says this, God's people ultimately need a leader who will rescue us from ourselves, from the failings and ambitions of our own hearts, and from the divisions and strife among us. It is a great reminder that the church's greatest problem is the church. And this is so interesting because what you see in Judges is that they didn't need to be saved from an enemy out there. They needed to be saved from themselves. And I think it's the same thing for every one of us. We, need, we, we don't need to be saved from people out there and there's all this evil in the world that we need to protect ourselves from and it's the government's fault and all of those things. What we need to realize is we in and of ourselves, our own hearts aren't right. We need to be saved from our own sin that we bring upon ourselves almost every single day. Right? We need to, we, the, the people of Israel didn't need a, a judge to come save them from their enemies. They need to be saved from themselves. We don't need someone to save us from the world around us. We need a Savior to come and save us from ourselves. 
The Bible says the heart is desperately wicked and who can know it? All of us need a savior and that's exactly why Jesus is so powerful that he came to do that for us. But the second thing that's missing from the cycle is not just oppression, it's also repentance. And this is so interesting to me because when you see Abimelech and just how, how horrible of a leader he is, how much he's doing to the nation and how much the nation has just ignored God altogether. They've abandoned him. They're not even looking for him. And yet, in chapter 10, God raises up another judge to save them. That is just sheer grace. They're abandoning him, not even looking for him, but God gives them a savior. Doesn't that sound familiar? That God has done the same thing for us, that we have abandoned God. That's the story of all of our lives. We have abandoned him. We did our own thing, and we took credit for our own thing. We wanted nothing to do with God. We weren't even looking for him. What happened in the gospel is that he came looking for us. That's Jesus, that he came down to us to give his life in our place. That's the truth of the gospel that makes all the difference, both now and forever. The people of Israel never repented, but God still gave them a savior. We weren't even looking for Jesus, but God still gave us a savior. That makes it one-way grace. There are people, God did this for us, even though he knew that there were people that would reject him. He did it anyway. It's a one-way grace. It's all him, and all we have to do is respond to the amazing grace of Jesus. Romans chapter 5 verse 6 says this you see at just the right time while we were still powerless Christ died for the ungodly this you see without God without Jesus we go from bad to worse ourselves we are capable of all the things Abimelech is capable of without Jesus and that means this that we do things our own way we look at God and we spit in his face and say I know what you want me to do but I'm not going to do it I want to do things my way and if it goes okay I'm going to take the credit for it I want nothing to do with you God and yet God still provides a way while we were powerless and I want you to know because we have made our own decisions and done our own thing what we deserve is the wrath of God We deserve the same thing Abimelech got, that a a millstone would come in on our head. But instead, God sent Jesus down to be crushed on our behalf, to die and take the wrath of God on himself so that if we would place our faith in Jesus, we would be forgiven. The millstone came down on Jesus, not on us. That's why Isaiah says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and by his wounds we have been healed. 